0: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Level Up Cleveland, and this week we have Mr. Joe Cleon with us. Hello. What's up, Joe? Thanks for coming down. Thanks for having me. How you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Joe's a photographer that you have absolutely seen his pictures before. He's been a radio personality on several different channel stations, cities. Um, you may be familiar with him. He's, he's done some work on NCX here, here locally, and where I'm most familiar with you is back when you were doing the Metamorphosis show on college radio on JCU now WJCU. Yeah, we, we're, we're also used to the UJC moniker. That it's, it's hard for me, but but you were that was that's where I remember you mostly from. Actually, was from that. That was um, fun.
1: That was that was the funnest time of twenty years in radio. That was the funnest time was when I started off on college radio.
0: Yeah, and and you know that was Bill Peters and New basically and a few you know others, but that was the time when all that was starting to to, to the eighties. Yeah,
1: Saturday right? night was the metal night. Bill was on Friday, and then me and Iraq did shows on Saturday. It was cool. And then somebody named Micho was also on on Saturday. If you remember him,
0: well, that now that Mario
1: I, Becerra, he was on Saturday too.
0: And that was when and, and wasn't Capka in the morning. Wasn't yeah Mitch Mitch Kampka? Yeah. wasn't he in the morning yeah. and he did like spooky tooth and them guys that bands and stuff he like that He was really mean to me Was he
1: Mitch was <laughs> Oh yeah <laughs> He was really mean to me. Like, when I first started there, I was just out of high school, and I didn't even... I was kind of afraid of everybody, and he was really mean to me, and I really got in his face and... like, Did you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And cursed at him. And uh, he never talked to me again after that.
0: No kidding. <laughs> he had a good show, though. I liked Melly Yeah, like I, show. I
1: listened to him even after that, but he was just kind of, kind a, of a dick. D- he was kind of a dick. He was yeah, yeah. a D. Um... And uh, everyone's and, gonna love we started off talking about yeah, Mitch. Well, I guess, guess wanted well, because you know what's funny
0: because I was on riding in on the way here and I was like, Who was that dude? It came and I was like, Mitch Kapka, I remember. So I had to bring it up. It just took, took a lot of energy to bring that kick out the jams, memory. man. Yeah, kick out the jams. Um, so yeah, so and and what you were doing back then was like a, a progressive metal kind of thing, wasn't it? Like a... yeah, I
1: played a lot of stuff. It was mostly progressive metal, hard rock, I had some punk. I played a lot of weird. The great thing about that those days was you could play anything.
0: Yeah, nobody. So don't, especially in college. You yeah, to... I
1: mean, I played everything from you know Fate's Warning to Rush to the Crumb Suckers and kind of everything in between.
0: You know, so it was it was cool to be able to just do anything I wanted. So so how do you? How did that? That's where it all started, correct? Would you yeah. say mm-hmm. so? You started in, in the whole broadcasting. Did you go to school and all that to do all this? How, how did you get involved in the
1: beginning? I went to school there for a couple of years, got my radio show, and then after two years, I was also working with Bill Peters at Warner-Electro Atlantic in Independence oh. when they had their you know their local office. And uh, one of the guys from Atco Records got me a gig at WONE, my first real radio gig.
0: In Akron? Yeah,
1: and once I started, because I'm from Calgary Falls. So once I started Uh doing WONE, that was kind of the reason I was going to school. And it didn't really seem wise to do two more years of student loans when I was already working full time in the business I was going to school for. So I dropped out of school and started working at O N E, And I stayed at, at UJC, at John Carroll, for probably another seven or eight years after that. So I was doing both, and then I kind of just did commercial radio for 20 years. That was it. And, until the industry went down the toilet, yeah. And,
0: and you always did broadcasting in the radio business? Did you ever do any other of the jobs, radio jobs? Or yeah, was I always? mean, I
1: was, the, my last gig was down in Canton. I was promotion director for a top 40 station. But other than that, I was always a full-time air personality. That was that was 99% of what I did, yeah.
0: Now, I was I was uh, reading some stuff on you. There's, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there about you and, and, and some of the things. And you did some, you know. There's some interesting things that have happened to you during your broadcasting thing that no one would ever even imagine. For instance, if I'm not mistaken, you were broadcasting radio during Hurricane Fran. Yes, in Savannah, Georgia. Literally while the hurricane is happening. Yeah. The eye is not far from you whatsoever, and you're on the radio broadcasting a show. The eye was
1: predicted to come ashore between Savannah and Hilton Head, and I was on a barrier island called Wilmington Island, which was right by Savannah. And uh, the radio station was a rickety old piece of shit kind of place, and they told me I could leave anytime I wanted, and I was doing the overnight shift, midnight to six. Well, by the time it got really bad, about two or three in the morning, it was so bad that I couldn't leave. And uh, I had a bottle of Jack Daniels there, a a bowl full of weed, and just, I was scared shitless, and uh, I sat there and did my show, and for some, we went off, the the electric went out, but we had a generator. So I fired up the generator, and I was one of the only media outlets in the whole city that was live during that hurricane.
0: Now, what were you doing? Were you broadcasting music? Oh, (laughs) yeah. People were doing
1: hurricane parties. I was playing Rocky Like a Hurricane, and I was all fucked up, and it was just, uh, it it was wild. And there was big pieces of debris crashing into the station and stuff. And it it was you could hear
0: all that stuff happening. Oh yeah, oh yeah.
1: I was waiting for the windows to break out and stuff. It it was it was scary. Um, I I wanted to leave about two thirty, three o'clock, and I opened the door and it was so bad that there was no way. If I would have walked out the door, I would have just been blown away. No shit. And when I left, it was weird because by the time I left, I had probably drank half the bottle of Jack Daniels and I was all fucked up. And I opened the door to walk out and I looked to where my car was and my car was gone. And I thought, oh, my God, somebody stole my car during a hurricane. What the hell? <laughs> and it took me a minute to realize that there was this big gravel parking lot where the station was. My car had blown about 200 feet from the hurricane, from the wind. It had blown about 200 feet way over to the, this field on the other side of the building. And uh, my car was completely battered, you know, with rocks hitting it and stuff. And then I went to go back to Tybee Island where I lived, and the island was closed. So I couldn't go home. And so I went to this like strip mall parking lot. I was exhausted. The hurricane it went and when it hit the jet stream. It kind of went north and landed like in southern North Carolina. So it was kind of far away. Um, but I, I went to the strip mall parking lot and just fell asleep in my car. And uh, some, you know, redneck cop came over and almost arrested me for vagrancy because I was sleeping in my car. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it, was a, it was a pretty wild experience. It was huh? an interesting... I have, I have a tape of that somewhere and I've always been wanting to dig that up because...
0: A tape of the show that you actually brought? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah that yeah. would be really and you, can, you
1: can hear like bangs into the building and, you know, it, you can, like, hear the wind roaring outside and, stuff. and are you
0: was... talking about all this as this is happening? Oh, yeah. i like put putting
1: a, people was... on the air. Anybody that still had a working phone, I was talking to, oh, I was talking no to some kidding. people. Oh, no kidding. You
0: were doing all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. It was, was, was a hurricane right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that what they're playing? I, I don't know what they're playing, but it sounds like bashing rocks so up a... against the wall <laughs> from a hurricane. It's like Charlie Brown's
1: parents. That's what it sounds like. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, what got you interested in doing that to begin with? What, 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 at what point did you want radio? To,
1: yeah, um, when I was about twelve in Cuyahoga Falls, um, I used to, they, when they started the Rocket on the River down there at Kiyoga oh, yeah. Falls. It was called the TGIF parties, and they had bands that would play down there. And my mom would drop me off on Friday after school down there, and I would watch the bands. And she'd pick me up at eight or nine o'clock. And uh, I got to know there was a a radio station in in Calgary Falls called WCUE. It was a, a, a AM station, but they played like Top 40 in rock, and they played like, you know, the Zeppelin song that was the radio song of the day, like Heartbreaker and, you know, stuff like that. And they sponsored this TGIF party. So I started going down there and started watching the bands, and I became friends with some of the guys from the radio station. And so after the bands were done, I would help them pick up trash and help them clean up and stuff. And so the one guy's asked my mom when she was picking me up if the next week they could take me to the radio station and give me some albums because I always helped them out. And my mom said, yes, yeah. So they took me to the station and took me in this record room that probably now in my memory is a thousand times bigger than it yeah, actually right. was. It's probably as big as <laughs> this. They're like, take whatever you want. And I'm like 12. And I took like two albums because I you know, didn't want to, and I came walking yeah. out and they're like, no, you go in there, you come out with at least like 20. And so I got like, you know, Finn Lizzie, Black Rose, like bands I didn't even really know at the time. Um, some Rush promos. I was already a Rush fan. I got some Rush radio promos I'd never seen before. and just walked out with this really cool stack of albums. And I don't know if you remember a DJ named Matt Patrick. He was on WKDD. He was a a, a Northeastern Ohio DJ for probably 30 years or longer. Um, He was just starting out there. And he let me sit in on the air with him for like an hour and showed me how to cue up the records and how to talk up to the post and do all that kind of stuff. And so I started doing that at home, just you know, playing radio, and that's kinda of how I got interested. You
0: just it got the fever, man. It and then cut. when I was
1: at John Carroll and saw E Rock at the radio station and he said he would give me my own radio show, I'm like, Oh hell yeah. This is you know, I've always thought about this and that was my opportunity and somehow I fell into it that way and ended up doing it for twenty years.
0: So so and you went to school for broadcasting there also. Why you did the radio station? I, my true? my
1: degree was in communications, but the first two years I really didn't take any communications classes because it was a Jesuit university, so they were all kind of religion classes, theology classes. There might have been a history of broadcasting yeah. class, and that's one of the reasons I dropped out because I was paying all this money for classes that I didn't care
0: about. They weren't gonna they you weren't know? gonna help you with yeah, what you no. were trying to pursue. I mean, I
1: wasn't gonna talk about earth science when I'm doing a rock show or anything, right? So, you know, it, so it just seemed kind of a waste. I, I was really just there. I would skip classes to go do radio shows, just fill in for people. If somebody needed a, a sub for their show and I had a class, I would just not go to the class
0: and go to the radio station. Because- so you're so you're just learning on the fly then. Yeah. Oh yeah. So and and, and are you basically like, uh, so you have other DJs and stuff at this point that you're looking up to and trying to like, copy some things off of these guys so you can figure yourself out eventually. I mean, like, who are you? Who are you influenced by as far as DJs and stuff go? At that, because that's what, at that time there was really DJs. And yeah, there was well, really a like
1: of, a lot of the ones that were influential back then were DJs that were on WUJC. I mean, Bill Peters, he had been there years, you know, however many years when I started there, and I ended up becoming really good friends with him and working with them at, at Warner and stuff. And uh, he was great. Um, Sue Sendez was on the air there. Um, she's still she was on the end for a long time and she's now does uh, shows on NCX and uh, I've become really good friends with her over the years and she was doing a modern rock show playing stuff that I hated like REM and The Cure and and stuff that as a 20 year old metalhead I couldn't stand but I always listened to her because she was so good on the air um, so there people like that. I listened to Mitch because he, you know, even though he was a dick, he was good on the air, you know. Um, and uh, there was a guy that did a interview show on MMS, a syndicated show, a California DJ named Jim Ladd, if you ever heard of Jim Ladd. Um, If you listen to the Roger Waters Radio Chaos album, he's the DJ on the album. The the album is like a radio show, and there's a DJ in between songs. So he plays that
0: that part. He's that
1: guy. He's a legendary, like at the beginning of rock radio, he was like a legendary California DJ. I see. And he did these just legendary interviews with Neil Peart and stuff. He had a, a, I think it was a Sunday night interview show, and I loved, I loved him. He actually came out with his memoirs about 10 years ago, and it's a great, great book.
0: Now now when you were when you were doing all this stuff now, you were basically a disc jockey though. Did you do interview type things also? Or is that something you also would do? Or? Yeah, it was after after
1: about a year being on a, a WUJC, I you know, I, I was getting calls from like people from Metal Blade and stuff and I realized that some of these bands that I loved, like Armored Saint and Lizzie Borden and you know, bands like that that I could get phone interviews with them, Overkill and Candlemass and sure. King Diamond and all these bands. And so yeah, I started doing a ton of those interviews. And then maybe a year or so after that I met some people from Scene magazine and they were like, hey, you're doing all these interviews. Why don't you write an article? I was a, a decent writer. My one class at, at John Carroll that I liked was creative writing that I got you know good grades in. So I started taking some of my interviews and turning them into articles for Scene. That was like 1989 and I'm still I'm still working for scene now, you know, how many 35 or whatever years later, except for the time I was in Savannah for five years. I've been at scene ever, you know, from 89 till now, either as a writer or now for the last, I don't know, 18 years as a photographer. Wow.
0: And, and that just tells me that you don't burn many bridges. You stay, you stay. You do I, do, you do. I
1: do burn some, but <laughs> I, I be careful not to burn ones the, that, you know. Important bridges. Yeah, yeah. No, but the scene people have always been great. I've had great relationships with them through the years, and they're really great people. Even the, the changes over in people over the years have been great. So I've always been really happy there.
0: Hell yeah. So, so, when you get into broadcasting and then you find yourself going to other places, broadcasting took you on your, your journey as far as moving geographically? Would that, is that how that works?
1: Yeah, my daughter moved down to South Carolina and I wanted to be close to her. And I was on, I've been on the air on O&E for about a year. And so I was uh, on, I took a vacation um, with a girl I was dating at the time. And I actually interviewed for a job at Atlantic Records in Atlanta which was only a couple hours away from my daughter. And I went to Atlanta, and I hated it. The first, right when I got off the highway and got to the downtown, some homeless guy came up to my car and was squeegeeing my window. And I'm, I'm telling the guy to, you know, get the fuck away from me. And he took his bucket of dirty squeegee water and just threw it in the window and covered me in dirty water. So I go into this interview at Atlantic <laughs> Records covered in shit water, basically. <laughs> And uh, I got the job. <laughs> I think they felt sorry for me. <laughs> like, this I, guy will I, come I, in here like this, <laughs> he'll do anything. Um, I got the job, but I, I'm driving out of the city going, God, I hate this city. I just, I just, it wasn't just the squeegee guy. I just, for some reason, just had a really bad vibe. Um, and I, I, I'm thinking, God, I'm going to take this job and move here, and I'm going to hate it. What am I going to do? And I had two weeks of vacation, and we were planning on going to Hilton Head. So on the way to Hilton Head, um, I'm all disheveled and pissed off and not knowing what I'm going to do. And, uh, I just want to, we'd driven for like three hours or whatever after we had already driven to Atlanta and I just wanted to get out of the car and chill. And I see this sign that says Tybee Island beach. I didn't, what the hell is that? But let's go to the beach. And we got off, took the exit, ended up on the beach in this really nice little barrier Island, which I ended up living on for five years. No shit. And it's like 30 minutes from Savannah. And so I'm sitting on the beach with a boombox listening to, you know, finding a radio station. And I found this rock station that was like one of the best rock stations I I ever heard. We sat there for like four hours and I'm listening to the station. It was freaking great. And I went to my car, of course, this is before cell phones, and dug out some quarters and went to a payphone and called the radio station and somehow got the program director on the phone and hey, I'm this douche from Cleveland. I'm looking for a job. You need anybody? And uh, he's like, well, yeah, we need somebody on our morning show. And I went in the next morning and got the job. Get
0: the hell <laughs> And out I of
1: called here. Atlantic and told him I wasn't going to take the job, and I moved to Savannah instead. And I was there for about five years till I got the job at NCX, and I moved back to Cleveland because I always wanted to work in Cleveland, and I moved back to take the job at NCX. Wow.
0: That's a great story. My Savannah time
1: was fun. It was fun. And I also worked for another station in Savannah, another rock station. And then during that time, I took a year away and went up to Vermont and did some network broadcasting in Vermont for this network. Um, And I was up there for about eight or nine months doing winter sports network stuff. No shit. And I spent three or four months skiing all through New England and doing broadcasts from the ski resorts and stuff. And had a company credit card and a brand new Jeep. (laughs) And it was just three months of party. It was was, was a three-month party
0: so you're just going up there at that point and you're just like talking to th- these athletes and stuff like that these skiers no or? i'm
1: doing i'm doing ski reports basically around new england given the conditions on the oh, mountains and, and I see. you know if, uh, everywhere i was doing even west coast places and talking about Vail and places like that and then also all throughout new england I did about 40 stations. I did two broadcasts every day, um, one right after the other because I'm on you know, I didn't call the places back later. But I would do two in a row on 40 stations, a couple TV stations. It was 80 to 100 broadcasts every day. It took about four or five hours. And uh, that really honed my skills as a broadcaster because some of those stations and those TV stations, if you were fi- if you were not 59.5 to 60.5, if you were anywhere outside of those parameters, you had to cut your report over and so I got to the point where I could do that really easily and that really really helped my my broadcasting skills being able to do that so that was a I didn't know it at the time I just took it because it paid well and it seemed like something cool to do and I, I just left my job at the one radio station because the program director was the owner's son which you know how often is that a good thing? And the dude, the dude was a big coke addict, and it was just a that's usually, it,
0: And that's usually the other part of that equation. Somehow um, when it's the owner's son, the son's a coke addict.
1: <laughs> he's, yeah, he he's sorted himself to death a few years after I left. Um,
0: but oh, it, really? It, but
1: but I, I got out of there and went up to Vermont, and I didn't realize that it would be. It was a really great job for, for my broadcasting because it just really honed. Instead of just going on the air talking about whatever the hell I wanted, I was really, you had parameters I was that, yeah, really regimented, and yeah. it was disciplined, and it was great. I was really... I, I'm really fortunate that I had that period of time.
0: Now, now as, as far as uh, your whole, the way that your whole broadcasting career went, do you have any regrets, is there anything? I mean, it sounds like you're pretty, like as you, as you talk, it sounds like, yeah, and then I did this, I did, and it sounds like you you did. I regret I didn't go
1: into a profession that paid better. <laughs>
0: so I was gonna get into that a little bit, but I mean, like it, it you know, all the broadcasters do complain, say this, this, this profession does not pay shit.
1: Um, I really don't have any regrets I, I had a ton of fun I'm a huge music head and being able to do that um, and you know, commercial radio jobs are not easy to get I mean if you look in Cleveland back I mean it's a lot different now there's even less jobs but in, in the 90s you know there's maybe a dozen rock radio DJs Yeah, how many other you know how many car mechanics are there or other professions. So those jobs were hard to get. Yeah. And when I could score those jobs, I always felt like it was an accomplishment just because they're so few and far in between. Yeah. And I think you had to be good to get those jobs.
0: Well, yeah, right.
1: Um, and it, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I remember at NCX, that's where I met Michael Stanley. And I ended up working with him as this photographer for 20 years. But uh, I, was, I would fill in for the production guy who did their commercials because I knew how to work Pro Tools, and they had an early version of Pro Tools that they did all their commercials on. And uh, so when the production guy was on vacation, I, they would take me off overnights, and I would go sit in during the day and do production. And so one day I'm sitting in there and Bill Lewis, the program director, walks in. He's like, hey, Michael had a flat tire, he can't do his show. It's like twenty minutes until his show. He's like, You're doing his show. We can't we can't get anybody, you know, in that 20 minutes. I'm thinking, holy shit, I gotta do Michael Stanley's show. And I was terrified, but I, I went in and did it and I had a great time. And the next I, I'd only met Michael a couple times. I kind of tried to stay away from him because I didn't you know did want to bother him when he was working and whatnot. And he came in and said, you know, dude, you sounded great. And and uh, every time he was off after that, he had me do his shows. Oh, I really? I was like his fill-in guy. His
0: personal fill-in yeah. guy.
1: And then I started doing photography, and uh, he saw some of my photos of Wish You Were Here, because I already worked with the band, so they were one of the first bands I started shooting. And he had me come out and start to do some shows, and I ended up working with him for 20 years. And how almost, I, almost 20 years as his photographer.
0: So... so- Wow. So that's a good way to start your, your photography career. Yeah. Because that catapult, that can easily quickly catapult you. Oh, yeah. Legitimacy. I mean, like, well, this is Michael Stanley's photographer. It's like, oh, yeah. Well.
1: <laughs> and there was a photo I took at Tower City of the band. And I had only done a handful of gigs. And I was there. And he's like, hey, in five minutes, we're going to do a band photo. Shit! I've never done a band photo with anybody before. Yeah, and I took this photo at the back of the stage, like facing out over the over the crowd. And they used that photo for almost every gig from 2006 until he stopped playing oh, before shit. the before the pandemic. Well,
0: um, what, so, so what exactly got you into the photography? Did, was that just was it was it a, a money based decision? Like I'm a, not making enough money. It was during- a
1: total accident. I uh, bought a thousand dollar camera that I couldn't afford for a trip to Mexico. I was going to visit the Mayan ruins and I wanted a decent camera to take pictures of like Chichen Itza and Tulum and the Mayan places that I was planning on visiting. And, uh, So I bought this $1,000 camera. I'd probably taken 200 pictures with disposable cameras in my life. I didn't know a thing about photography, but I saw this advertisement for this Sony camera. It took those three inch CDs instead of memory cards and the the advertising was all, you know, wowed me. And I I put this thing on a credit card and I couldn't afford it. And I was thinking it was the dumbest thing I ever did. And I went out to Mexico and just had the camera on auto, just point and shoot. And I got great pictures of the the pyramids and the the Mayan ruins. And so I come back, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do with this thing? I,
0: I haven't even made a payment on it yet. <laughs>
1: and I was a big fan of Art Bell, you know, the Coast to Coast uh, AM radio show. And uh, so I was Coast listed-
0: to Coast, I remember yeah. Coast to Coast. It's, yeah. it's still on. Now Is it? Nore,
1: yeah. But our Art Bell, the Art Bell days were fantastic. Yeah. And I would stay up because I was an overnight guy anyway. Yeah, so it was late, I, I was, late. I was used to being up overnight, so I listened to that show all the time. And. Uh, I'm listening to the show a few days after I got back, and they said, like, on Friday, they were doing a show on the Mayans. So this is 2002, and I emailed them and said, I just got back from there. I got these great photos, and I sent them a couple, and they wanted to use it on the front page of their website. And that was the most syndicated radio show on the planet at the time. I mean it was all over the, the earth, in yeah. different all kinds of countries. It was everywhere, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stations. So they put my photo on the front page of the website and they linked to my page of photos from Mexico. And I sold about four dollars or $500 of photos that night.
0: Almost almost paid for half the And camera. I thought, holy <laughs> shit,
1: I can make money with this goddamn thing. <laughs> and uh, so I was working on the crew with Wish You Were Here, you know, e band, because we were friends since John Carroll. I started taking pictures at those shows, and then Michael saw that I was starting to take photos. I started taking pictures of Michael. And I had lots of connections from my commercial radio experience and from working at Warner Electro Atlantic from the record labels. So when second B-class bands like Collective Soul or people like that would come to town, if I knew a record guy or knew somebody at the label, I would get a photo pass. (coughs) Excuse me. And every one I got, it was easier to get the next one. Yeah,
0: right, right. And
1: I would have never imagined that 20 years later I had shot 1,500 bands and, you know, bands like... Paul McCartney and I, I look back on it and it just blows my mind because it yeah. was a freaking accident. I just I just stumbled into it. Which and just, Once the ball started rolling, I just ran with it. You know,
0: which is how a lot of things start for people all the time. So.
1: And I never took a class or read a book or anything. And, and after I got really got going, I never wanted to do that because I didn't want to be clouded by rules. Yeah. And so I just never. I'm just completely. been your self-taught. own thing. Doing your own yeah. thing.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break. Okay. That, that was first time. That went fast. Yeah, that, that went really fast. <laughs> How long was that? I want uh, 25 minutes. <laughs>
1: one life all in the spud monsters run devil run lifeline and my solo band Foose. i'm coming at you live to let you know i have a new book out called motivate me it's a memoir of inspirational quotes stories and life lessons this book takes you through my life and shows how i've handled adversity firsthand by the inspiration of others if you lack enthusiasm but want to make goals in life and get after them then this book is for you to order, go to my website at foosforlife.com, F-O-O-S-E-F-O-R-L-I-F-E.com, foosforlife.com. I'd like to send a big shout out to Big Bry and Pat, the producer at Level Up Cleveland for making a platform for hometown musicians and artists like myself to promote our bands and projects. This is Don Foos signing off for the Level Up Cleveland podcast. Peace out.
0: What's going on Level Up listeners? Signal Flow Studios is a Cleveland recording studio founded in 2013, located in the steel yard just down the hall from Brian and Pat at Level Up Cleveland. At Signal Flow we pride ourselves in offering top quality audio and a great recording experience to artists here in town and from across the country. But what makes us unique at Signal Flow is our undivided attention to the people who keep us going. That's you, the artists. So come on in and let us make your music our top priority. You can book online at www.signalflowstudio.com or give us a call at 216-920-2075. We'll see you soon. And we're back, Mr. Joe Cleon. And I definitely want to hear about I mean we, we touched on the, the the um broadcasting career, mm-hmm. but the photography career's gotta be really cool because you're 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 taking photographs of some of the most unbelievably profound bands that ever played rock and roll. It's so much fun. Yeah. And, and I mean, we're talking the stones, we're talking Aerosmith and we're talking everybody pretty much from yeah, that I mean, on down too. I mean, Paul like
1: McCartney, Taylor Swift, Bieber, Miley Cyrus and Barry Manilow
0: and everybody in between. And, and when you're taking these photos, um, you're it's this isn't just like a freelancing thing where you're just like having fun and you just show up and take pictures. You get hired, either by local magazines or the bands themselves.
1: Yeah, I could never get that kind of access if I was just correct shooting just for fun.
0: Yeah, because you're like right in the pit. You're like you get you get a, a I lot seen, of shows. Yeah, yeah, you're a lot like of shows. Right I'm in
1: the pit. Some are uh, more and more these days are getting to be from the soundboard, but uh, a
0: lot's from the pit. Yeah, really. Mm-hmm. Now, now. Being right by the soundboard. Are you like right by the soundboard when you're taking these pictures? A lot of you, times, yeah. Do you ever get to interact with that that whole process that's going on over there? I mean that's not kinda, really.
1: I try and stay out of their way. Yeah, yeah. I was say, um, you know, the front the house guy's gotta see the stage to see what's going yeah, on. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I try and stay out of their way and stuff. But you know, like for Springsteen recently, they put us behind the sound. And, you know, the soundboard is bad enough because you've got to really zoom. Yeah, and You're, I, you're I, back there. I'm standing on a stool sometimes with a tripod if it's allowed, and it's it's difficult from that far away. Yeah. And when they move you back even farther, it, it gets even more
0: difficult. So what, what's the purpose of that? They're just trying to sell t- more tickets up front or something? No, like? the, pr- I, I, the I, just
1: because they don't care. <laughs> um, I think, and they, they just, you know, just like why that they have the rule of the first three songs. Um, you know, most of the time, I'm just allowed to shoot the first three songs. Sometimes it's the first two songs. Really? And that's just the way it's been for a long time. Is
0: that because they're afraid the bands will look like torn, you know, like yeah, they start falling look,
1: apart. Yeah, they'll look more like a rock and roll band when they get some sweat on. Them yeah, and stuff. like um, I'm thinking they would look better after the, like the 10th or 11th. I mean, there's stuff. some bands I'm allowed to shoot more, shoot the whole show, or, or some band like uh, Britney Spears actually is smart. Like I, I got to shoot like songs four, five, six, and seven. And the reason was because that one had the most outfit and set changes. So it had the most diverse amount of photos. But I think a lot of bands don't even know what the restrictions are on the photographers. They don't even. Pay attention, and the publicists and stuff don't even tell them.
0: Has that changed over the years, as far as your restrictions go?
1: It's gotten a bit worse. Um, it was—I mean, I, I didn't start till 2002, um, and I, I know a lot of photographers, you know, like Anastasia Pantios and Janet McCaska who are friends of mine. That you know, back then, you know, you shot Zeppelin at the Coliseum. You shot the whole three-hour show. Yeah. Um, but that's definitely not the way now. It's a lot more regimented. Um, we get escorted to the stage. They tell us exactly where to stand, exactly what we can do. And when the third song's over, they escort you out. You're never left alone um, at all, ever.
0: And, and there's no, do you know the reason? Is there, can you, can you, why?
1: Why is, why would, why? Probably because some assholes have screwed shit up and, you know, done things they shouldn't have done and stuff. And they just, it's just, it's just very tightly controlled. And a lot of bands don't want, you know, they don't want you to catch photos of them, you know, Doing something, going behind an amp, or doing something, or picking their ass, or whatever, um, you know. So they make sure that everything is
0: really regimented. I got it. I got it. I got it. Now, any like more like most amazing? I mean, come on, you're you're you're, at, you know, this the, the idea of doing this puts you in how many shows just that alone?
1: I've opened your eyes to fifteen hundred. I think I've done give or take about a hundred,
0: and that's and that's concert shoots. Yeah holy shit for a while
1: before covid for about six years or maybe seven i was doing 100 to 150 a year wow and i also have a day job working at home for an indie music distributor so it was a it was a grind um i loved it but i was just in this grind where i'd work do a show and sometimes in the summer i'd do 10 shows in a row and i just kind of got used to it and i had access that i could shoot almost any show that i wanted and so I took advantage of that. I wanted to build a huge portfolio, and I had access to all these big artists. So I, I did as many shows as I could. And in the beginning, I didn't do stuff like Bieber or Taylor Swift because I don't like that music. I was more doing hard rock and metal stuff. But I realized that I can sell a lot more pop and country stuff. A uh, Bruce Springsteen fan that's our age doesn't really care about buying a photo. But a mom that took her kid to her first show at Taylor Swift or Bieber Will always wants to buy that photo. Yes. And visually, those shows are a lot better. Springsteen's got kind of a minimalistic light show. Well, the pop bands, a lot of times, they're not even really singing half the time. And so <laughs> it's all about the visuals and the LEDs and the shows are brilliantly lit. And there's all, you know, so it visually... It, from, a a of, from a photographer's
0: perspective, that's perfect. They're, yeah. a lot,
1: they're a lot better, so I started shooting those those pop shows and, and stuff, and uh, I really like doing that because visually they're a lot better. But to shoot bands that I've loved since I was five years old or six years old, like Aerosmith, or my favorite band. Rush, or even just iconic bands like the Stones or Elton John or those bands, it's just such a, a rush to, to borrow a phrase when yeah. to to just to be have access to those people that I idolized when I was a little kid. Um, and even shows like Bieber that I, I would never listen to for pleasure. When when the lights go down in a, an arena and there's 20,000 people there and the place erupts, that it's just such an electric
0: feeling. Yeah, you're right. Um, the energy's still there no I matter just, what. I yeah. just
1: feed off that energy no matter what, the, what. And I don't even really pay attention to the music. The first time I shot Rush, I was so freaked out because I've seen them over 50 times, and they're my all-time favorite band of all time. I remember riding home from that show thinking, what songs did they play that I – what were the first – I didn't know what <laughs> the first three songs were because I was so in the zone just trying to, you know, compose my pictures that I wasn't even really paying attention to what they were playing.
0: Now, now when you go – when you're like you, – you, you find out you have this shoot, you get booked for it, you get hired, and then you're on your way to the shoot. Are you, are you going over in your mind – like, for instance, I just talked to you about it on the break. I said you have – I saw the one picture of The Who, and you got – Daltrey's spinning it, you know, he's famously spun his microphone around. Mm-hmm. And you got one picture where you caught that microphone in midair. It almost looks like it's erect, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's and it's right by Pete Townsend. It's like, he'll say it's pointing at Pete Townsend. It's the it's a super mm-hmm. cool picture, especially you. if you know the who and the whole Daltrey mm-hmm. thing and you're seeing it, it's beautiful. So on you're on, your, on, your on the way there. Do you stop and think to yourself, I want to get a picture of him twirling that microphone and catch it right there? Or is this something, do these things just come into you kind of as you're clicking? A little bit of both, but I, I don't really think about much on the way to
1: the show, but I do homework before the show. Okay. Um, and I don't know if a lot of other photographers do this because I've seen... Me get shots that other photographers that are there don't get because they don't know that it's going to happen. But what, what I'll do for most shows, especially arena shows, is I'll go to a website called setlist.fm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that or not. I'm not. It has millions of set lists from every band and every tour going back to the 70s. And so let's say Rush is playing. Um, I'll go to setlist.fm and I'll look at shows from the last couple of weeks And the majority of the time the same, they play the same songs in the same order. 95% of bands play the same, it's all rehearsed and regimented. A lot of times they have, you know, MIDI stuff programmed, they can't really vary from the songs. So it's usually always, the first three songs are always the same. So I find out what those three songs are and then I'll go to YouTube and I'll search for those songs but I'll search the parameters where it only shows videos from the last month. And it's usually cell phone videos but I'll get shots from a week before on the tour And I'll watch those three songs and a lot of times the beginning of the second song the singer will jump off the drum riser or there's something that happens. Every Consistently, time, yeah, and so I, I realize what those are and that I can be ready for them when the show happens, and you know the the singer will grab something or will, there'll be a special lighting thing on the guitarist or something, and I'll be ready for that shot, and I'll see the other photographers are pointing the other way because they don't know that that's wow happening. So that's kind of that's kind of the homework that I've done, and I've been able to get a lot of good shots I would have otherwise missed because I take. Twenty minutes and just watch some videos, you know, from fan videos, cell phone videos.
0: Yeah. Now, during this time, you know, like there's, you're, you're kind of like, you know, I mean, there's the there's the average fan at the show, and then there's you, the photographer, where you're, you're kind of like more intimate with the with what's going on with the band. The band knows they're being photographed. Obviously, every show they're being photographed. So. Do, do, do you ever have interactions with these bands or, or anything crazy happen where you actually are – aside from the ones that hire you directly, I'm talking about more so like some of the bigger bands and stuff like that. you ever have Not any? Not
1: very often, but sometimes. Um You know, I've partied with a few of them. um, Done some, you know, hang hung out with some backstage. Um, I got thrown out of the pit by Joe Jonas one time. Oh, the Jonas Brothers! (laughs) That's kind of street cred. Being thrown out of the show by by Joe Jonas, you know, Um, it definitely helps you. uh, He was he was lip syncing, and and like during songs, he would move the mic away from his mouth, and the vocals would still be unaffected. (laughs) And so this song ended on a note where he was holding out a note. Ah, and he moved the mic away, and the ah was still going on, and I, I just inadvertently started laughing, and I was the only photographer there for some reason. Nobody else was shooting the show at House of Blues, and he just pointed at me and went like that, and it was like after two songs, and I, you know, got my two songs, so I'm like, okay, yeah, I guess, that's and, I, and I left, and uh,
0: wow, how many times do you think you've seen lip syncing at a concert? I mean, do you oh, think well, it's pretty easy to tell. I know, do you see close. it a lot? More and more, and and sometimes they're
1: not 100% lip syncing, but they'll have a vocal track and they'll sing along to the vocal track, and the vocal track is maybe 30% of what you're hearing. Wow. And, you know, there there's some pop artists, I, I won't name any, but there's some pop artists that they'll be running all around the stage and doing these choreographed dance routines and up and down stairs and stuff, and the vocals are unaffected. They're pristine. Yeah, I've noticed but then, that. But then in between songs, they'll turn on their head mic so they could talk to the crowd, and they're out of breath. Yeah. And, you know, hey, they're talking to the crowd. And then the next song starts, and boom, it's back to, but, prist- yeah. back to pristine land. And you know, it's pretty easy to tell what's going on yeah. there if you you know if you're paying attention. Yeah. But, well, you got you know, got the twelve year olds in the audience don't care, but it's it's easy to
0: tell. Any any uh, shoots stand out? Like is there is there is there one or is there one that you just for whatever reason you don't forget that one or? Rush
1: tw- the two times I've shot them just because they're my my favorite band, um, the Stones because they're just such an iconic band. To be able to shoot them was. I'm not really a big Stones fan, Oof. but it was amazing to to shoot them. Any, anybody that's of that caliber, like Elton John or Paul McCartney or the Stones, even if I don't like them personally, yeah. just to shoot somebody who is so iconic and is known worldwide. Uh, my Kiss shoots were always fun because the one thing that's great about Kiss is the first three songs, they really don't even pay much attention to the audience. They're just mugging for the photographers. They will come up and point and, and get right up in your face. And that's why since since you were twelve, every picture of Kiss you've seen is freaking great, because <laughs> that's what they do, and that's why that's why their their image from the '70s is so amazing is because they've always taken that into consideration. Smart play to the camera, always smart. knew yeah. how to
0: how to manage themselves. Always, and, and I've
1: always, I've been a big Kiss fan since I was a little kid, so that's that's a fun band for me to shoot.
0: Hell yeah! Well, and just the fact that they're. Yes, I yeah. mean, like, if you're going to shoot something, like, how much more colorful and how much more mm-hmm. fire can you get, you know? In, yeah, in that's, the one, that's
1: the one rock band that the stage show is just so incredible. Yeah. Um, it, it's fantastic. And, and other bands like Rush always have had really, really good stage shows, too. But then there's, you know, like Springsteen and people like that where they're just minimalistic. But the focus is on the performers. So I still get good shots. It just doesn't have anything to do with the lighting. It's just the performer and catching the performer in the zone. You
0: know yeah and you do you tend to like a, a lot of your photos that I'm looking at you tend to capture these people like 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 when you're looking at the the Steven Tyler photos and stuff it's like you you capture those things that, that make Steven Tyler Steven Tyler like the little things that he does and you and you're like that's that in that one moment you got it it's like oh yeah that's that's what he does. That's how he looks. That's his thing that he does. And you get it every time, it seems like. I had a couple
1: people when I first started tell me that, a couple different things. One was that it, my photos made them... Feel like they were there, like they didn't go to the show, but your photos made me feel like I was at the show. And then other people who were there would tell me sometimes that my photos took them back, and you know, from when they were there at the show. And that's kind of what I, I try and capture is just, you know, the the emotion of the performance when the the performer is so in the zone that they're not even really paying attention to the crowd, that they're just in their own little world, in their own little happy place, and they're in the zone. You know, yeah. and that's kind of the the only way I can really describe it when they're just. Totally into what they're doing and they're nobody else in the world matters, just what they're doing on the on the guitar and in the song is is captured in the moment, you know.
0: Is it is now from a photographer, do you take a lot of pictures during a shoot and then have to go through a lot of them and say, oh yeah, yeah. Is that how that works? I mean, like it's constantly pick and then there's hundreds of pictures that you're sifting through at oh, the end of a oh,
1: shoot? A lot of times during a guitar solo or somebody's jumping off the drum riser or they're doing something like that, I'll have my camera on five frames a second. Most of the time I do have it on five frames a second. So I do bursts of photos. Oh. And sometimes that seventh photo or that tenth photo, the first six can... You know be shitty yeah. but that seventh one is the iconic one like I've got a photo of Stevie Nicks with her leg kicking her leg up and I it's, saw it's that. perfectly vertical yeah and that was a burst of like 10 photos and the other ones were they were worthless but that one photo in the middle of the set was the perfect one and that's the only one I care about the other ones I would throw away and with memory cards you know I can take as many photos as I want um, I there's some film photographers who still shoot film yeah and the thought of doing a concert with five rolls of film and having 96 having to time out 90 ninety six photos over a show. Yeah. That's horrifying to me because Limit, yeah. I'll do ninety-six photos in the first, you know, minute or so of the first song. Yeah.
0: Not much less trying to space that out for the whole show. That's I can't even imagine that. So so when it comes to this job, if you want to call it a job or hobby or it's a job, I mean you're getting paid to do it. So a lot of your time is in that part. Oh, yeah. I would imagine, yeah. right? It's not so much the shoot itself. The shoot's quick. You get in there, you take your pictures, you get out. Now now you got to go through everything, and you got to freaking – and then and then there's editing to the pictures also. A lot of – yeah,
1: well, a lot of editing. It's, it's yeah. you know, even the perfect picture I edit. It's really no different than a guitarist in the studio can lay down the perfect guitar track, but you can always make it a little better with for an a little, EQ or some verb or delay or whatever, sure. you know, effects. So that's uh, – I do a lot I do a lot of editing on, on photos sometimes. Um, and, you know, like for the pop artist with three-minute songs – you know, a lot of times I'll look at the timestamp on the first and the last photo just to see how long I was shooting, and sometimes it's seven or eight minutes. Um, and then I'll go home, and it'll take me three hours to go through all the photos and do my editing and cropping and get the get a set of 30 or however many that I give to the magazine. And most of the time, they have to have them by the open of business the next day, so I have to go right home from the show and, and you know get them done before I go to sleep. And the three-song thing used to bother me. But over the years, I've gotten used to it or actually like it now because, especially places like Blossom, I get the hell out of there after the third yeah, song yeah, and it's not, stuck s- in traffic not like spend three hours in traffic. Yeah, man. Um, and if I stay for the whole show, which I do sometimes if I really like the band, but if I stay for the whole show, I'm up till four in the morning. Yeah, right. So I get out of there after three songs. I get home. I'm usually done by midnight or so, and it's a decent – it's a kind of an early evening. Yeah.
0: Um, not, not, I usually do things in chronological order, but I want to go back to something that we you touched on because it's, 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 I think it'd be interesting. You said you were Michael Stanley's basically personal photographer for 20 years. Concert photographer, yeah. concert photographer for mm-hmm. 20 years. Um, did you become good friends with him through this process, or? or yeah, or, well, yeah, well, I was,
1: I was friend. I didn't hang out with them a lot, but I was friends with them. I did some, I did a photo shoot at his house where we hung out, and I would hang out with him before shows and stuff. And he was, just, I, I think of the thousands of people I worked with, um, I don't know if I ever worked with anybody that had more integrity than he did. Really, he was just a super nice guy. No I mean, if you interrupted him at dinner with his family and wanted them to sign a napkin and you were in his face, he might be a little standoffish, but he was the nicest guy. He okay. was just, he was a super, super, super guy.
0: Yeah, and and, and pretty popular around these parts. Oh, my God, but enormously that's... popular. I mean, <laughs> he
1: was... you know, the he, he held the attendance records at almost every venue, Blossom, the Front Row, the Coliseum, all those places he, he had the attendance records for.
0: Now, aside from doing just music concerts and stuff like that you you do other things you don't just take pictures of 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 great band members and stuff you take other pictures you do other stuff yeah too. about
1: 5 or so years into it i started getting asked to do portrait stuff like high school graduation photos and weddings and stuff and i started doing those because they pay well um, especially weddings um, but a wedding is like a 40-hour work week. A wedding is a huge undertaking. Just one wedding. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you're there for 10 hours during the day and then, you know, processing all those photos. There's thousands of photos. Yeah. Um. So that's, that's a big job. And I, I really don't do a lot of weddings anymore because it, it it's just... A big undertaking. Well, and then you're just dealing with a lot of unsavory people and drunks by the end of the night and bridezillas and momzillas. and
0: <laughs> um. We so, talked about this with another episode. I was like, isn't it tough with this? Oh, it was... Uh, Tricky Dick, I think it was, yeah. And I was like, and I was like, you know, like, is it tough when you're dealing with some of these tune to be brides and all that stuff? You know, I want my wedding perfect, and da da da. I do, do got thrown know. out of a
1: wedding once because right <laughs> after the reception started, everybody was already drunk, and the the groom and his brand new father in law, the wife's father, got into a fist fight on the dance floor, and this was like right after dinner. And so I walked up and started taking pictures. It was my job. And uh, they threw me out. And uh, they that, that was the one they never came to. I got really good photos during the wedding, but I never never heard from them. They, uh-huh. I, I tried to you know left messages for them to give them their photos, but I never never heard back from them. And after a couple experiences like that, um, I would only do weddings for friends and friends of friends. Or if I shot a wedding three years ago and one of the bridesmaids was getting married, and she asked me, since I kind of knew her, yeah, um, well, I would so. do some. But I didn't do a lot of stranger weddings after the first no four or five new. years because it was it was just bizarre a world, you know the the. Mon- <laughs> Mom and the brides and the bridesmaids are popping Xanax and shit at three in the afternoon, and you just know it's going to end badly, you know. <laughs> um, and there, there was just, it was just not fun. And I, I, I got into photography doing concerts, and that is so much fun. Yeah. And weddings were just not fun at all, so I, I really kind of stopped doing it because I don't want to do stuff that's not fun.
0: Yeah. Hey, let me ask you this. Now, as far as the photography goes and concerts go and stuff. What's the portrait it, stuff I love. That's that's fun. Well, I'm just wondering, what have you noticed so far as far as before the pandemic and after the pandemic? What has changed as far as that goes? Have you noticed anything different? Not really. I
1: mean when the pandemic started i lost a ton of gigs um and about a year after like 2022 i really didn't shoot much of anything i just after doing so many gigs and 150 a year for so long i didn't realize how much i loved the downtime and i started to really enjoy it and i started doing some stuff like cooking and some stuff that i never thought i would enjoy but i really started enjoying it and uh i kind of got back into it uh, about a year ago and then uh, very not very much, but then I've kind of been building up a little bit. I'm still not near close to the level I used to be, yeah. but I'm starting to do to do more shows. And I, I think the only thing that's really different is that uh, there's a higher percentage of shows that are from the soundboard, and some of the agreements are more restrictive. Um, where if I have to sign over copyrights to a band, I, I usually won't shoot the show. Oh. Because I I have retained the copyrights to all of my
0: photos. So you want control over that? Yeah, part of, it. of yeah.
1: course. Yeah, and if I can't if I can't at least use the photos on my own website to promote myself, a lot of times I won't do. Ta- this you show. won't
0: take on the job. Um,
1: what's the point if I can't even use a photo myself? Not I mean it's okay I might say I'm not going to sell it or anything, but if I can't even use it on social media or anything like that, fuck it. Why would I want you know? That, that's ridiculous.
0: Have you had any issues with this with other bands, or have you had any problems where? You just, I mean, like, not, not that we have to say names or anything, but, like, have you ever worked for somebody or done a, a shoot and wound up finding out that this guy was a real asshole or this girl was a real asshole, this artist or whatever? And you're just...
1: Usually not the artist, but I've dealt with some tour managers and some people that were real assholes. But it's very, I mean, out of 1,500 shows, that's maybe happened three or four
0: times. Oh, really? So it's real rare. Usually yeah, you, everyone's pretty cordial. And those have
1: always been with some of the classic rock bands. The, really? pop, the pop bands, Britney Spears, those people are... Th- Traditionally much nicer and easier to work with than the crusty old seventy no year old Billy Joel tour manager wow. who's, you know, been jaded after being in the business for twenty years and really kinda doesn't want to be there. Um, and that's not true for everybody, yeah. but uh, I, I have much better experiences with, with the pop people. And I, I've got hired for a lot of cool things like, you know, to shoot meet and greets for people like Kendrick Lamar and stuff, where they invite you on the bus after the show and they'll you know party with you and pass a blunt around and they're really nice people and yeah. stuff. And um, that doesn't happen a lot with a lot of the crusty classic rock people.
0: Really? They keep the blunts to themselves. Yeah, <laughs> selfish people, you know. <laughs> So what do you think, like, as far as the future goes with all this? I mean, like, is he just going to keep going with the photography for now? Is that it? What about broadcasting? I mean, like, are you, are you, you ever get an itch? I do radio shows for the indie network that I work with of independent bands.
1: Um, but I don't think, I, I don't know if I, maybe if, if the trend turns around from the iHearts and the, you know, Conglomeration stations and yeah, terrestrial radio know, um, is,
0: is taking a backseat lately. To yeah, a lot I mean, of I, too. I
1: would I would do something. I, I might be doing a couple of shows on the summit um, down in Akron. I, I was talking to them recently about doing some stuff.
0: Pretty popular. Um,
1: yeah, it's, it's a great station, yeah. and my program director from Rock 107 in Canton, where I used to work, is involved there. Uh, a guy named Garrett Hartz, one of my favorite program directors of all the stations I, I ever worked at. But as far as doing something on an iHeart station or anything like that, I would never want to do yeah. that. Okay. Um, if I had some independent control uh, on some smaller stations or a public station or something like that, I would probably you know, be interested. Um, and and I even kind of see the photography thing kind of going the way that radio went. Um, it's being devalued. Everybody takes cell phone pictures now, so no one wants to. No one gives a shit about paying someone like me because they got five hundred people that are right in the right by the stage taking their cell phone pictures and giving them to the band. That's
0: true. Um, and these cell phones so, have incredible cameras on them now too. Well, I mean, those photos like, aren't really the greatest. No, but <laughs> I mean, like in something that comes th- in, in a package this big. I mean, it, yeah, it's so convenient. I mean, compared to what they used to take is what I'm talking about. They've really come a long way with these freaking cell phones.
1: But a lot of times, though, when the lights are flashing fast and the performers are moving fast, cell phones are different. If you're standing in a field or you're sitting here doing a selfie, those photos are fantastic. But to take a a fast-moving sports photo or a fast-moving concert photo where there's lots of different lighting changes and stuff, that's difficult. And that's the reason I love concert photography, because it's so difficult. I could sit in a field and get a picture, a perfect picture, every yeah. time because you can make minute adjustments to all, day, all day long yeah. until it's perfect. What I'm doing, even if I've shot at House of Blues or Blossom 100 times, every light show's different, yeah. and those lights are fast-moving. The stage could be completely lit up, and then there's just a spotlight on a performer five seconds later. So you can never just set a setting and sit there and, and work. You always have to adjust every five seconds, and yeah. it's really... I think concert photography and... Sp- Fast-moving sports photography are probably the two hardest types of photography, and that's why I like it because it, it never gets easy. It's always yeah, a, challenge. a challenge. It's always hard, and I, I like that because I can never I can never phone it in. You know. Yeah, we're out
0: of time, man. I got I got I got to tell you we're done. Wow, that went quick. That was fast, <laughs> but it was awesome. I think we. I, I mean, that was cool, man. I mean, like you, you do a lot. You've done a lot. Very interesting life. I appreciate having I mean, Congratulations on your recent award. Thank you, man. Very Please cool. Let that. me check
1: that out. Hold it up for everybody. You're best radio host—is that the
0: award? Yeah, it was for best radio host love, from love my from my People Scene magazine. No, this wasn't seen. Oh, I thought I thought you Cleveland got one. Music Awards is what this was from. Oh, okay. Not Cleveland scene. Oh, Okay. Nah, but will have to edit that now. I thought <laughs> I thought it was the I thought it was the Scene Readers poll. I wish we tried that one. We tried for. Um, well, congratulations, anyway. I'm thank sorry. Thank you. I appreciate it. No, it's cool. <laughs> um. All right. That's it from us. I want to thank Joe for coming down here. and uh,
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. A good time. Yeah,
0: it was. it was going to be great. It's going to be a good episode. Take it easy. This has been Level Up Cleveland. There's a new episode every week. Available now on all streaming services. You can catch every episode of Level Up Cleveland on YouTube. Until next week rock on that'll be fine